Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. This episode is sponsored, edited, and engineered by my friends at Law Pods. Law Pods is a professional podcast production company focused solely on attorney podcasting. I absolutely love working with them, and if you're considering becoming a legal podcaster or just want to learn more, check them out at lawpods.com. And now, let's get started. Hello, and welcome back. In today's episode, I speak with Bradford Harden, who chairs Davis Wright Tremaine's National Banking and Financial Services Practice. He frequently supports banks, credit unions, and fintech companies through high-risk examinations and enforcement investigations at the state and federal levels. And I look forward to him telling me about what all those things mean. Bradford also advises on regulatory compliance and new product development. He's worked with large banks, fast-moving challengers alike in developing new products, dealing with regulatory barriers, and getting to market. He started his career as a law clerk in the Middle District of Alabama and then worked at Wilmer Hale's office in D.C. before moving to Davis Wright Tremaine. He's a graduate of the University of South Alabama, go Jaguars, and the University of Alabama Law School, Roll Tide, I think is what I'm supposed to say there, from which he earned his degree summa cum laude. So welcome to the podcast, Bradford. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Jonah. Awesome. Well, look, I want to start, as I always do, by talking about your path to the law and more specifically to sort of your niche in law. I don't think it's a specialty that young kids talk about when they're growing up. Someday I want to be a banking lawyer. How did you find yourself in the law and then ultimately in your practice area? Well, I think that's a combination really of three factors that quite commonly lead people to their career you know, process of discovery in the sense that I didn't necessarily set out to be a banking and financial services lawyer as a child, you know, I don't remember, but I imagine I wanted to be a firefighter or an astronaut or, you know, whatever the stereotypes might have been. But ultimately, it has resulted from a combination of natural interest, Mm -hmm. opportunity and skill. And what I mean by that is, I've learned over the years that Finance and money is just very innately interesting to me. Hmm. It's something that, you know, you've seen me write about on a almost a hobby basis on Twitter and in other places. I gravitated to studying finance in college and did get a finance degree, although I never really worked in the field. And so I have an innate interest in this subject matter and area hmm. of personal finance and investment and, you know, the financial regulatory system and all those things. They're just interesting to me. I think that is really helpful when you're trying to find a a career that you can stay engaged with over a long period of time. And it has been good to me in that respect. Number two, opportunity. I graduated from law school right into the teeth of the great financial crisis in 2008. Mm -hmm. And there was a brief period when it seemed like no one was ever going to have work to do ever again in the legal field. And very quickly thereafter, the banking lawyers uh, just could not keep up with the demand. Hmm. And that, of course, you know, lasted through the crisis itself, the uh, mortgage foreclosure crisis that kind of followed in quick succession, and then all of the governmental response through Dodd-Frank and the enforcement, you know, that really lasted for eight or 10 years. Right. And so when I came to DC, there was a true abundance of work to be done in this area. (laughs) Right. And so there, that created opportunity, right? You know, there was just really a lot of opportunity for people who were inclined to to work in that space. 
also something of a dearth of people who were inclined to work in that space because mm, the banks yes. had become really out of favor, to say the least, at that time. So that that kind of amplified the opportunity, I guess. There was a lot of work and a lot of young lawyers who were not interested in in being defending banks for a living. So that that was good in, in that I found the opportunity. The other thing, and this is a story that you know, hopefully will be helpful to some of your listeners and, and particularly the younger ones. I started my career in litigation mm-hmm. and, you know, was doing financial services and crisis related litigation. And what I learned over, you know, the first few years of practice was that I was never going to be a great litigator, you know? Say more about that. Why, why, why did you think that? The mix of skills that were needed just were not in the sweet spot for me. Um, I'm more of a big picture thinker compared to a detail person. I need a lot of action in my work life. And sometimes litigation provides that, but oftentimes, you know, particularly as a young lawyer or mid-level, you might be working on a brief for a month, mm-hmm. you know, and that that I found to be really taxing. And ultimately that, and there may be some other things about it too, but that combination of factors meant that I just wasn't, you know, really, I could see that I was not going to be as successful as I wanted to be as, as a litigator. Hmm. I remember encountering some really skilled appellate lawyers at Wilmer who, <laughs> who just seemed like natural born analogical reasoners. And I was like, <laughs> I oh, love that. Yeah. I am not that exactly. I found that I did much better in the pieces of practice where there was more consultative between me and my colleagues and the client the you know the issues were maybe quicker bites that you could cycle through at a higher rate of speed there was a lot more advisory type work like yes. okay here are all the facts um here's what the law is what are the various considerations and how do we synthesize all those and you know come up with a proposed course of action hmm. and i understand that that happens in litigation practice as well but a lot of it is the percentage makeup is very different in a regulatory practice right so by virtue of not having the success that i was looking for in litigation i had an opportunity to move into the regulatory practice you know and and a lot of my work to this day is controversy oriented and we're fighting with the government about things but a lot of it is consultative and you know, just us and the client trying to solve a problem. So the pace is right for me. The The type of advice that and work that I'm being required to do is right for me. And so it was, you know, a little bit of a painful process at that time to learn what my strengths and weaknesses were as a, right. as a lawyer and find that overlap in the Venn diagram between what am I interested in? What are the opportunities in the market for private sector lawyers? And what am I good at? Yes. If you're only in two of those buckets, you can't make a career out of it, right? Mm. You can be very interested and there can be tons of opportunity, but if you're not good at it, it won't work. Right. And if there may be tons of opportunity and you might be very good at it, but if you're not interested, you won't be able to sustain that, I don't think. Hmm. You know, people, it's just too hard to to do this kind of work over a long period of time if you're not interested in what you're working on. Yeah, I, I really love that. Venn diagram model. And, you know, obviously I talk to lawyers a lot, uh, given what I do now on the podcast and folks have said versions of that, but I really think that you're, you've crystallized it really well, which is this idea of skill, opportunity, and interest. And the challenge, which I think your story shows is you also don't have perfect information when you're starting about any of those three things 
right? When you're starting law school, you don't know what they're going to be hiring for three years from now. I'm looking at my law students right now who are going to be, I mean, the big moments for them are going to be uh, COVID. We've had huge political changes. We've had changes to the tax code, all things that when they started college, they had no idea existed. Uh, So you don't have perfect information there. And you also don't yet have perfect information on the things you're good at. So it seems like having those opportunities and being in a place that allowed you to make that shift, even if it was challenging in the moment, was also really important. Yeah, it was really important. And, you know, thinking about my colleagues now, like many of us have been through a career shift of one variety or another, you know, that was either event driven or, you know, driven by a, some lack of success in some mm-hmm. context. Right. But I agree with you for for the young lawyers in particular that self-awareness, both about, you know, what your areas of interest are and what your skills are, is really difficult to cultivate. I mean, really hard. Right. And people shouldn't think they have to do it from day one. I mean, then sometimes it compared it to when it, when you get engaged and the first question everybody asks is when and where is the wedding? And you're like, well, we just got engaged. When were we supposed to have that conversation? Right. It's the same thing. You Somebody says, oh, I'm going to law school. Like, oh, what kind of lawyer are you going to be? It's like, well, I got to I got to learn a little bit more and have a little more experience before I can actually answer that question with any sort of certainty. And I think sometimes people feel like it's too late. And what I've learned from these interviews is it's it's rarely too late. Yes. And I think one of the things that you have to come to accept is that, you know, you will have setbacks in your career, often big setbacks and ones that, you know, create a lot of stress for you and, and for your family, you know, and for the people around you. And like, the magic is in how you respond to those things. Hmm. You know, do you yes. do you conclude from those that this kind of law practice isn't for you and you need to do something different entirely? Or do you conclude that, oh, well, I've just learned something I didn't know about myself. Like, what is the way that I ad- adapt to that? Hmm. Uh, and how quickly can I recover from the setback and start moving forward again? You know, that's a big part of it too. One of the things that I've seen with a lot of you know, up and coming lawyers is they try one kind of private law practice and decide in one law firm and decide that, oh, this is terrible. Like, mm. you know, I, I have to go into an, a different, entirely different kind of law practice setting or leave the law entirely. And that might be the right answer for them. But if you have a desire to develop a career in a law firm private practice setting, like, you should try something that's just a little bit different mm-hmm. and maybe will solve the thing that is really causing the pain for you rather than to, you know, just kind of walk away from your years of intense legal training and, and the experience that you get in that first position. Hmm. So I, I it certainly had been my experience. And I think I'll, looking around at my cohort, you know, which is now kind of getting into a mid-career phase, a lot of people have been through that. It's very normal. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, look, I do want to spend some time talking about what it is that you do for people who are unfamiliar with it, myself included. But before we do that, when you read your your resume, you spent a lot of time in Alabama and you know went to school in Alabama, you clerked in Alabama, and then you came up to DC. And I think a question that I often sort of see in the world, not from my students at Georgetown, but from students generally is, is it possible? And what are the benefits and maybe what are the challenges of moving from a more regional legal market in a different part of the country to a place like DC or New York or Chicago or one of kind of the bigger legal markets, either just from your experience or, or, or what you've counseled others who've wanted to make that move? 
Well, yeah, it is definitely possible, right? I mean, I'm proof of that. Uh, and, and there are many other people both uh, ahead of me in tenure and, and behind me that are also proofs of that. So definitely possible. I do think that the pathways are not as grooved in hmm. for the more regional schools than you know they are for the top 14 schools. And so the candidates have to do a little bit more work. And the thing to understand for those people is, you know, who are trying to break into one of the major markets from outside one of the schools that have established feeder tracks in, into those markets is you have to get attention on your file. Like that is the thing that you need because mm -hmm. every law firm that's hiring summers or entry-level lawyers has more applications than they can reasonably evaluate on a for, for the positions that are available. That is the case. Like they might be hiring 20 summer associates. They have 200 applications from the top 14 schools and they've got a mailbox full of applications from the you know, non-OCI schools. That was true when I was clerking and going through that uh, applicant consideration process has been true at both of the law firms that I've worked at here in DC. And so that's the problem the non-OCI school candidate has to solve. And myself, I had a lot of difficulty at first getting interviews in the DC market. You know, I sent in all the applications and the resumes and did all the things and I had done very well in, in law school the silence was just deafening. Yeah. And so I thought, okay, how do I crack the door here? Hmm. And I had a professor in Mobile, Alabama, who had, um, she taught the legal environment of business to the undergraduate business students at my okay. college. And she had worked at Morgan Lewis here in DC prior to moving home to Mobile where she had grown up and working in, in, in the business school. And so I called her. We had a great relationship, as you can imagine. Like I was one of the students that she had fond memories of because I was very interested in law and we had done some extracurricular work together and so on. And I called her and I said, hey, I'm having this problem. I can't, I can't get the attention of the DC legal market. And she said, send me your materials and I'll see what I can do. And she you know, called a mentor at Morgan Lewis and said, this guy's great. You should talk to him. And that got me out of the stack at Morgan hmm. Lewis, right? and got me an interview in the market with one firm. Once I had that, I emailed around to all the other firms that I hadn't heard from yes. and came up and did a week of interviews, eight or nine interviews over the course of the week. Um, I don't know if the market is still quite that way. This was, you know, 07 or whatever. But again, that was the way for me to get out of the stack. Like, I'm going to be in town. You can share my travel expenses with this other law firm. Like, you know, it's pretty low risk for you to have me meet with a couple of folks. Uh -huh. And then, you know, the interview process went decently well, and I got a group of offers and ended up spending my 2L summer here. Wow. I then had a mentor suggest to me that I try to uh, get another iron in the fire in my pre-clerkship summer. Mm -hmm. And again, I don't know if firms are still doing this. Um, there was really a lot of demand for entry-level lawyers at that time. But I did another round of applications leading into my post-graduation pre-clerkship summer, mm -hmm. already having an offer in hand from my 2L summer firm and was able to get you know a, a position that summer. But now I had a couple of different options to choose from. And it was hard being a summer associate and studying for the bar simultaneously. But yeah, that's a challenge. That but that summer was Wilmer. And I ended up spending 10 years there, you know, and yeah. it was it was mm -hmm. great. You know, so it just that 
you have to create your own opportunity if you're not in an environment that is going to as reliably create that opportunity for you, I guess is how I would put it. I love that. I love that. And I think it's so right. I think people tend to too often think about applying to jobs, especially jobs where there are lots of resumes in the pile and it's a big game of musical chairs and and no one wants to spend too much time for people who aren't going to sit in the chairs thinking it's a one-step process. And I think what what you've just described is more of a two-step process. First, you have to get your application read and you have to get invited to come by. <laughs> and then once you're there, you have to show them that you're you're worth it. But that first step is is so important. And I think it's something that people forget. And I'm glad you mentioned clerkships because that's exactly right. I think on clerkships, that's the challenge now. I mean, if you want to clerk for a judge, some federal judges now get a thousand applications for each clerkship spot. And so you need to be in as many piles as possible and you need to do whatever you can to stand out from the pile. Yeah, I think that's the way it is. The other thing that I say to people who approach me with this problem is, as a young person who hasn't you know, had a lot of exposure to the kinds of people that you need in order to help you with these things, mm-hmm. you are wrong about their appetite to help. Hmm. You're hesitant, you feel like it's an imposition if you ask, Um, It seems awkward and nervousness inducing, and it may be those things, but people who have been successful want to help other people who are trying to be successful. Love that. So if you're in that category of trying to make it, and there's somebody who has some common background with you, whether it's mutual connection, or you went to the same law school, or you're from the same town, or whatever it might be, and you can go to them and say like, hey... I want to go from where I am today to where you are. They will naturally want to respond to that. And, and it's a tiny thing for them, you Mm -hmm. know, like it's, it's getting to know you well enough so that they can make a recommendation and then sending an email or making a phone call. Yeah. It's a five minute favor. And so I think young folks who are uh, in the position of needing that kind of help should not hesitate to ask for it. Love it. So let's talk a little bit about what you do. Um, so how do you describe, uh, I, you know, I ask this question in different ways on different episodes, but one way I try to ask it is, how do you describe your job to someone who has no idea what your practice area is uh, at a cocktail party or maybe at, uh, you know, career day at your kid's school? <laughs> well, for career day at the kid's school, I usually say that I help companies solve their problems and in particular, banks and other financial companies. You know, and that fundamentally is is what I do. We have other lawyers in our practice who are like deal lawyers, and they kind of drive business forward. But usually, I'm trying to solve some sort of problem, some barrier or threat, you know, that needs resolution. So that, you know, when I'm I'm talking to children, that's the 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 level. Yeah. When I'm talking to someone who's maybe a little bit more sophisticated than that, you know, I describe it basically in the following ways. I at lead a team of 30 lawyers at, at Davis Wright, which is our banking and financial services practice. We have clients that are large financial institutions, you know, the big banks that you see and read about in the news. We have innovative financial technology companies as clients. And we have clients who are not banks or finance companies, but that are commercial enterprises that have that touch the financial system in one way or another, like big tech companies, for example, 
have been getting a lot of attention for their payments related activities. Right. And so our practice really is spread across those three different categories of, of clients. As a group, you know, we, we do have a group of deal lawyers and they do commercial transactions, by which I mean partnerships and alliances, you know, between our clients and other functionaries in the system. Like, for example, one of the things that they do is negotiate the credit card issuer agreements between banks and Visa or MasterCard, which are huge multi-year programs, or you know, between a bank or credit card issuer and an airline to offer an airline branded credit card. Got it. So just to take a couple of examples, they do tech deals and other things as well. Sure. We have a group that represents banks in their what we call their prudential regulatory affairs. So like the comptroller of the currency and the Federal Reserve, which is more famous in the FDIC. Yeah. You know, they supervise the banks to make sure they don't get themselves or the country or the financial system in trouble. So we have a group that does that. Myself, I'm kind of straddling two groups. One we call our regulatory group, which is really enables the provision of consumer financial services by any of our different client types. By enables, I mean to either assist with developing products in ways that comply with all the federal consumer financial protection laws and the state laws, sure, or deal with problems that come up in the operation of an existing product. Like we forgot to send out credit card statements for the last three months. Like what are the implications of that uh, under the laws and regulations? And then the other uh, half of my practice I spend on government enforcement. So you know, all of the, the banking agencies that I just mentioned, plus the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and the Federal Trade Commission, and state financial regulators and AGs, all bring enforcement actions against all those different client types that I mentioned for law violations, basically. Hmm. And so, you know, that is pretty classic DC investigation oriented kind of practice where the client has done something that has caught a regulator's attention. The regulator starts investigating, sending document requests, taking testimony of uh, witnesses and corporate representatives. And then, you know, you begin an advocacy process of fighting with the government, in effect, about whether what the client has done is a law violation, whether it's not, if if it is, what the consequences have been for sure. consumers in terms of um, changes that need to be made to the product or uh, financial remediation that might need to be provided. Yeah. So, you know, we work on those kinds of matters. Hmm. I work on those kinds of matters quite often when the clients find themselves in hot water, so to speak. Got it. You know, how would you describe your day to day? Like, what are you spending your hours doing? Is it communicating with clients, communicating with internal folks? Is it writing emails? Is it building PowerPoint decks? Is it talking to the government? Maybe some piece of all of those things. Like, you know, if somebody says, I have no idea, that sounds interesting, right? We talked about interest is one piece and they say, that sounds interesting. What are you doing all day so they can start assessing the skills? Well, I wear a few different hats. We're focused just now on, you know, the working lawyer kind of law practice piece of it. And that is a big part of it. And, and my day-to-day -day as a working lawyer is typically t taking in some issue, whatever it might be in from a client or whatever identifying somebody else to work with me on it mm -hmm. and giving that person some ideas and direction about what we need to do from here going forward. And then, you know, iterating on drafts, 
before we reach a final product. There are a bunch of different variations on that, right? Like the draft might be an email memo to the client responding to a question. It might be a presentation document that we're mm -hmm. making for a meeting with the government. It might be a letter that we're drafting on behalf of a client to another party that has a particular objective. So it could be any d different of those types of work products. And usually I have, I don't know, eight or 10 things like that in the air at any given mm -hmm. time, you know, and I'm working with three or four different other people on them. So it's a lot of keeping the plate spinning hmm. when it comes to that kind of work. There, of course, is a whole client and government facing component to a lot of those projects. So those might be client calls or, you know, discussions with the government. That whole set of activities together is probably 60% of my time all in. I'm also a partner at the law firm, so I have to run my own practice. And that's, you know, probably another 20% of my time, right? And that is client relations for existing clients, client development, you know, going out and trying to find new clients and new work, sure. which can take a bunch of different forms depending on what your, you know, preferences are. And then administrative work of like managing billing and things of that nature. Hmm. Finally, I chair this practice group and so have a portfolio of uh, firm management responsibilities. And those are really energizing and fun to me. And, you know, range every range from relatively minor things like planning practice group meetings or the practice group retreat, you know, which have, right. I say they're minor, but they have really important functions in terms of enculturation and, you know, developing a group ethos and so forth and so on, all the way up to like really strategic planning and execution type work of like, what do we want this practice group to look like in three, five, and 10 years? And what are the things that we need to be doing in order to build in that direction? A big component of which very often is recruiting, you know, so hmm. I, I spend a lot of my time on lateral attorney recruiting. Hmm. So yeah, it's really all of those things. It's become, you know, quite a um, busy and varied portfolio, but I like that as we were discussing earlier, like it's a lot of action and that's good for me. It strikes me that that the action, for some people, the action is debilitating, but it sounds like for you, the action is facilitating in terms of, you know, keeping you going and keeping you excited about what you're doing. It is, but there's an important caveat there, which we just have a great team and, you know, the dynamics within our group are really healthy and productive, you know, now and since I've been here at least. And so... You know, that enables me to do hmm. a lot of different things and not just me, but other, other people as well, because everybody can kind of play their role or roles as the case may be and as it often is. So, you know, I mean, it, I've described my role in a bunch of different things, but the truth of the matter is that there's a lot of people involved in all the different things that I described, you know, and it's, um, hmm. I'm not making any of those contributions alone, like none of them. Right. Yeah, I guess the two follow-ups to that. One is, you know, you mentioned that you're thinking three, five, ten years down the road. Where do you see this practice area, not just at your firm, but generally going? Where are the jobs going to be? Where are the interesting legal questions going to be sort of going into the near to medium term future? Well, there's a couple of, I guess, macro trends that are maybe a few, a few macro trends that are really interesting. One is you know, fintech is really going through a period of tremendous success and maturation. That's true across financial services, but especially in consumer finance, which is a lot of where I spend my time. There are, you know, fintechs with really prominent 
national brands and huge customer, huge bases of, of customers. And, you know, they've had a lot of success. They're also driving a huge amount of innovation in the industry, both in partnership with banks and um, in, in competition with banks. And I think the whole field of financial technology will continue to develop at a very rapid pace, both mm-hmm. in the innovative companies themselves, but also within the traditional financial institutions. Like they understand that they need to be moving as quickly and being as innovative as their challengers or the prospects for them are not great over the long term. Jamie Dimon has talked about this a lot in his shareholder letters and in other venues. So that is a big trend. It's also a really exciting place to be a lawyer at the moment, you know, because it's very fast moving. Uh, There are really smart and talented people working in that space. There's a lot of innovation happening. It's really dynamic and interesting, both in the fintech companies, but then also in the real uh, innovation hubs within the more traditional FIs. So that is one big thing, fintech. A second one, maybe, you know, related is blockchain and cryptocurrency. Yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah. There is a lot of interesting stuff happening in that space, much of which is outside of my, you know, zone of of competence. But it's clear that it's not going away. You know, I mean, I've been kind of exposed to those issues for seven or eight years or whatever, having worked in this space. And like, it's that industry is not going to disappear. It's um, it's not without substance and merit. It is increasingly inside the regulatory perimeter, um, which mm-hmm. is something that will enable it to really interface with the, you know, the legacy financial system and institutional capital and all that stuff. So that's another area where there's just tremendous growth. And the lawyers that are working in that space are having a great time, you know, and they're they're writing on a pretty blank sheet, which presents a lot of risk, candidly, but also a lot of opportunity. And I think we're going to see a lot more out of DC over the next three to five years when it comes to that stuff. The presidential working group has, you know, put out a roadmap for how the whole of government is going to respond to this set of innovations. So that's a big and important development. The last one that I would mention, because I like rules of three, is <laughs> is data and privacy mm-hmm. in in even in finance in particular, but beyond it as well. One of the things that the CFPB has on its rulemaking agenda is a rulemaking under Dodd-Frank, which has has not been done to date, that will enable consumers to have more control over their financial data. It's called Dodd-Frank Section 1033. And that's going to create a lot of really novel and interesting issues uh, as it relates to consumer financial data privacy, the ability for consumers to you know, move their accounts potentially between financial services providers. And it's all new, like that we have nothing like that in the United States right now, although they do in Europe. And there's a rulemaking coming down the pike. So there's no experts in it today. And I think that's one of the things that is always, you know, a sign to look for is, am I competing with a bunch of incumbents, if I'm trying Mm. to build a practice in this area? And, you know, maybe, maybe this isn't the case so much with fintech, but with crypto and with you know, the new financial privacy stuff that's coming down the pike, there are no incumbents, right? You know, there are none. Um, And so you can be one of the chief experts in those areas pretty quickly, right? um, Because everybody's starting at the same spot. Right. And, and you have to start, start from scratch in building, in building that expertise or maybe not from scratch, but I interviewed somebody else who works sort of in the IP NFT space, right? So it's the same 
technology, but applied to a very different legal area. And his answer to a similar question was basically, there's a lot of people who are going to put it on their firm bio, but not a lot of people who have experience. And that's kind of the wild, the closest we get to the wild, wild west of law. Yeah. And it's really fun. It's exciting, but it's also a little bit nerve wracking being the first at something. Yeah. And lawyers really do have to be careful. Like I, I am, we, we work on innovation a lot. And I think it's thrilling and fun and creates a lot, of, a lot of opportunity, but it is risky too. Like one of the things in the crypto space and that has burnt, burned a lot of people back in 2017-ish, there, there were some uh, an innovation called initial coin offerings. Mm-hmm. A lot of lawyers advised on those things and the SEC ultimately took a quite dim view of them under the securities laws. And it created a lot of problems for some people's careers um, and investors and the companies that were engaged in those things and so on. So you do have to be careful when you're working in uncertain areas. That's an important limitation. Sure. And I guess my other question on that is sort of about how to develop skills for areas that we don't even know what they're necessarily going to look like. And sort of there's two flavors of this question. The first is just like, these aren't classes that you can take in law school, right? So how are you supposed to be expected to learn about them? But also, what are you doing even at this stage in your career to sort of keep up on sort of what's changing and where it's going to keep learning? So I guess the question is twofold. One, for more junior people, what skill? how do they develop these skills and what skills should they be developing? And then for those listeners who might be a little further on in their career, you know, how do you keep up with this fast moving area? I think for the for the young folks, the thing that you need to commit yourself to is being autodidactic. Uh, and that's a, a little bit of a a big word. But what it means is a self-directed learner, you know, mm. someone who really is committed to learning on their own new things. You know, and I think a lot of lawyers are naturally inclined to to self-teaching. Uh, but it's something that you have to develop a self-image around, I think, and sustain. This is also related to, and and I think that is the case for any area of law practice, right? Like we're talking about innovation, but it's important in every f- sub-discipline, really, because tax is not the most innovative field in my mind uh, in the world. But if you're not keeping up to date on the state of the art in that field, you're going to get yourself and your clients in really big problems. Similar for a lot of litigation areas, you know, doctrine develops and new types Mm. of new threads of cases emerge. And if you're not aware of what's going on in your area, you won't be the best lawyer that you can be for your client, which is not, which is not the goal that you should have for yourself. So whether it's in an innovative area or a more traditional area, the nature of legal work is that things are changing all the time and you just have to be committed to, to learning that stuff and Mm. to learning it on your, on your own. Because oftentimes there's not, there are ways to work with other people to, to keep up to date, but really it's, you know, you have to seek out those opportunities and that information. So be autodidactic, really important thing. You know, for the folks later in career, I think it's a really, or at least I have found it difficult to balance the need to stay up to date on an industry mm-hmm. and a particularly a fast moving innovative industry and just information overload. Yeah. That it has um, been a struggle for me. I think it's a struggle for a lot of people. You know, I have been through these cycles where I get different daily roundups in the morning, you know, and I'll add and add and add. And then I realize like, oh, I'm getting 12 daily emails every morning. Right. Like I can't consume all this information. So it's a matter of 
identifying those high quality sources of information that hmm. are worth your time and attention and can get you the information that is you know useful and valuable like uh twitter has been really useful to me in this respect because it has opened a channel of information into a lot of parts of our industry that don't get the same level of press coverage hmm. and trade press coverage like is very easy for me to find out what our large bank clients are up to and what their competitors sure. are up to. It's in the Wall Street Journal, you know? Right. But if I want to understand what the seed stage fintech companies are doing, like I'm not going to find that in the Wall Street Journal. Mm. And I'm probably not going to find it in any of those uh, daily emails that are coming around. Maybe there are some, but I have to seek them out. You know, they're not the name brand ones. They're like the newsletter that somebody, you know, some young um, innovator is is writing um, in their spare time while they do their startup, you know? Right. And so that's been part of the the way that I've approached it is like, I know I have to consume a lot of information to stay current, but I try to be really disciplined about what that information flow is so that I'm getting the breadth of information that I need and a manageable kind of quantity. I love that. And I think that's so true for everyone. I mean, I've joked many times that I think like attention management is going to be the the superpower skill of the 21st century lawyer and this idea of like what your media diet is and and being really thoughtful about it i think is a huge piece of that so you know you talked about twitter and and that's where we met and i've loved following you and reading about your thoughts and your threads and one of the cool things that i think you talk about is sort of how to be a successful outside counsel. I think there's a lot of people who are in-house and I've asked a lot of them on the podcast what outside counsel can do better, but I, I don't see that as much from outside counsel saying how outside counsel can do better. So what are some of your thoughts? You know, it's a pretty broad question. I'll let you take it however you want, but what are some of your thoughts on how to be a, a strong outside counsel today? Well, it sounds like I should be asking you um, or, or listening to more of your back episodes anyway. <laughs> Here I think is... Um, one of the fundamental insights for what we do, even though it's very specialized, you know, compared to like a general litigation practice or something very specialized um, and our industry is very concentrated. There are always other lawyers with comparable experience and expertise. Hmm. So our clients have choices and all of those choices have the technical skill and the ability and the market intel to do the work. And I think we have to be really humble about that. Like, you know, we like to think that we're the best, of course, but the truth of the matter is that we're not. There may not be a huge number of alternatives, but there are definitely alternatives and they're not that hard to find. So the thing that we need to do better and the thing that we fundamentally are selling to our clients is client service. And, you know, that is the product. We're a professional services industry. We are selling client service. And so what does that mean? Well, it means a lot of different things. And, you know, my pin tweet gets into a lot of them, but it means a lot more to us than being responsive on the emails and providing good quality work product. You know, like you have to think about what are the things that are not table stakes for your competition? Responsiveness, surprisingly, is one of them. Like we mm. consistently hear from clients that their lawyers are not responsive. Like it takes them too long to respond to emails. 
It takes them too long to generate work product. It's just slow and not moving at the speed of their business. So that's an obvious one, but it's really key. Right. And so I, I hear it over and over and over again. So I feel compelled to repeat it. It's a big one. I think being willing to tell your clients, we're not the right firm for this, mm. that you are only working in your sweet spot. The part of the project that we're engaged here in the firm is like multiplying the number of sweet spots that we have. Right. But so often we've seen people get in trouble when they go outside their sweet spot, right? Like, oh, I'm going to do this kind of project that I've never done before. Well, right. you know, the next thing you know, it's taking forever. It's very expensive. The advice isn't great. The client can tell that you don't really know what hmm. you're doing. And that's a permanently damaging kind of mistake for a client relationship, right? Because they're hiring you for your expertise. And then the other maybe big category of things is relationship oriented, right? Like our clients are big companies with a lot of money or whatever, but the people that we work for are people, hmm. you know, they're in-house lawyers who have their own careers. They have their own, you know, successes and difficulties with their in-house clients. They're people too, uh, you know, and they, they want to do things like pro bono that might be difficult for them to access uh, in an in-house environment. And so we've tried really hard to pay attention to those relationship elements, hmm. you know, to support that in-house lawyer, if they're having, um, difficulty with a client or, uh, help them find a job that's a better fit for them somewhere else in the industry if their current situation isn't really working out because we're very networked compared to in-house lawyers. Sure. Or just yesterday was financial institutions pro bono day. Wow. And, you know, we put together four different pro bono opportunities that were bite-sized, you know, half day or less and made them available to our in-house clients. We had almost 60 in-house lawyers hmm, participate cool. in pro bono projects yesterday. And that's that's something that you know in-house lawyers want to do, but it is very difficult for them because they don't have the resources of a law firm in their in-house legal departments to support that kind of work. They want to you know develop and mentor diverse lawyers, and so hmm. we partner up with them to to advance the careers of diverse lawyers on both sides. You know, so I think that relationship piece has been really key for us, and you know it's been good for our business, obviously. But the bigger thing is that it just, it makes the work more fun, you know? Yeah. Like it's the writing the email memos or whatever is, is fun and exciting, but like, you know, being able to contribute to someone's career or create an opportunity for them or help them through a difficult situation is really, those are the things that you remember. Hmm. Love that. So I have two final questions. So the first is one I try to ask everyone who I know who's a dad and in law, I ask moms too, but I think it's important to ask dads because uh, we don't get asked enough. You know, how have you been able to, and you've been in big law for a while now, how have you been able to, and I hate the phrase work-life balance, but how have you been able to have a fulfilling non-professional life as a father, as a husband, as a human, uh, while also obviously working in an industry, which as you've said is, prides itself on responsiveness. That has varied over time. Quite candidly, I met my wife in law school. And when we started having kids, she stayed home for many years, six or seven years, I think she was a primary caregiver for our kids. That created a lot of space for my professional life and meant but within our family, we had a really good uh, work-life balance overall. 
definitely sacrifices on my end in terms of the amount of time that I got to spend with my kids. But I never really was in a position where I felt like it was an unacceptable degree of, of sacrifice. You know, you can protect the quality time if it's a high priority for you. You know, and I do think that there are sometimes unavoidable trade-offs between those things. And you have to decide deliberately how you're going to make them. Hmm. So that was that was a big part of it. And I think a lot of, I'm not saying this is a good thing, but a lot of big law lawyers would tell you that that has been, you know, part of their experience. And then second, as I've gotten later into my career, like it's, I definitely have more control over my schedule now than, you know, I did when I was an, an up and coming associate. And so I'm able to, you know, schedule and protect that time pretty well. Like hmm. I feel very good about my overall work-life balance and the amount of time that, you know, I get to spend with my family. Our firm is also not as demanding in terms of hours production uh, as, as some others. So I'm able to manage that just fine. And it's a commitment we kind of all make to each other here at the firm to not run the place in a way that will mean our lawyers don't get to have a balanced life. Great. Well, we've come to the last question, which is the one I always ask, which is about some advice about something you wish you knew earlier in your career that you know now. And, you know, I'm specifically interested in what you've been talking about online, which I think is fantastic of sort of, you know, finding something that you like, finding creativity, staying motivated and engaged. What's something that you sort of wish you knew earlier on that you're glad you know now in that in that vein? Well, you mentioned social media, and um, honestly, that's that's where my head is going. I was really not a very online person until quite recently, um, and during the pandemic, you know, I ended up uh, spending more time online, and have really come to appreciate just how efficiently and effectively you can cultivate and broaden a network of other professionals, people who have other interests outside of profession that are similar to yours, people who think about the world in the same or even different ways mm -hmm. that are rewarding to you. That innovation in my way of being has been surprisingly rewarding, both in terms of client development, client relations, introducing new ideas and ways of thinking into the way that I lead the you know, lead the firm and run our business in lateral recruiting. Like that's one of the things that I, I did not anticipate when I started writing on Twitter was just how, how much of an impact it would have to lateral with lateral lawyers. Sure. Because, you know, now I've got a stream of consciousness of, you know, all the stuff I've been writing about that people read before we start talking. Yeah. And so, you know, now we're, we're in a way more advanced stage in the conversation at the beginning because of that public record. So I would have put um, more time and attention into, I guess you might call it online networking or, hmm. you know, just being professionally and personally active on social media. It's been a real accelerant and magnifier of a lot of different things. Like if you, I, I know we're uh, run, running to the end of our time here, but if you think about the efficiency of trying to find and uh, spend time with that same group of people in, you know, meet space or whatever, it's a lot. It's a lot harder to find people. It's a lot more time consuming to yes. hunt them down and, you know, spend one on one time with them online. You know, the algorithms bring you together. You can have one to many kind of 
uh, communications and they're very good at matching up people who are good matches. Like that's the whole business of those platforms. So it's been a much more powerful thing than I would have anticipated. I wish I had been, you know, doing it earlier. I love that. I love that. And, you know, I'm glad that the algorithm brought us together. Uh, I'm so glad that you were willing to share all about your path and your career. And where can people find you if they're looking for you online? Yeah, sure. Just Google Bradford Harden. I'm there. You can find me on uh, the law firm website, dwt.com, obviously. Or if you're on Twitter, you can find me at Bradford underscore Harden. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Jonah. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Be well. Again, I'm Jonah Perlin, and this is the How I Lawyer podcast. Thanks to podcast sponsor Law Pods for their expert editing. If you're a lawyer considering starting your own podcast, definitely check them out at lawpods.com. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll consider sharing it with friends and colleagues or on social media. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please sign up for the email list at howilawyer.com or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, if you have comments, suggestions, or ideas for the show, please reach out to me at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.